0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The position of CLD,
1: uh, which I don't think differs from the broad position of civil society in Canada, is that the federal access to information system is broken. Uh, And we... uh, Um, Although we're a civil society organization, we measure our words fairly carefully, and we don't throw around terms like broken very easily. Uh, But I think that at this point, that is a a uh, well-charted position on the act, uh, supported by uh, numerous studies over
0: a very long period of time. Uh, We feel it's an appropriate term to use. That was Toby Mendel executive director of the Centre for Law and Democracy back in 2016, telling a House of Commons committee that the access to information system was broken. Not much has changed over the past seven years. There have been some modest reforms, but those who had hoped for long-anticipated fixes to Canada's ATIP system have been left sorely disappointed. While the reforms continue to lag within government, the Globe and Mail has undertaken a remarkable project that does the work government should be doing. Secret Canada is part giant ATIP database, part investigative series in the Globe on access to information. Led by Tom Cardoso and Robin Doolittle, the project is an exceptional resource that opens the door to better government transparency and greater accessibility of the ATIP system. Cardoso is a member of the Globe's investigations team, whose work often combines freedom of information requests, data analysis, and source development. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the challenges with Canada's access to information system and the Secret Canada Project. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, I'm really glad uh, that you've taken the time to, to come on. We were together on a panel at a recent conference where you had the chance to ask me questions, so I'm glad to be able to reverse things. Uh, yeah, the tables to turned. There you go. <laughs> Now, you know, at the time we were talking about access to information as well. And and you've, of course, been a longtime user of the access to information system in Canada, including, uh, some people might know, creating some some useful tools that simplify a process that sometimes seems to create barriers to requests. But I have to say that with the, the Secret Canada Initiative, the Globe, led by you and your colleague Robin Doolittle, have created a truly exceptional resource that opens the door to, I think, better government transparency, greater accessibility of the ATIP system. I want, to, of course, get into what you've created, but before that, let's discuss the current system and some of the challenges. And why don't we start with a bit of a A Tip One Hundred and One, so to speak, from the perspective of a journalist who's been an active user of the system. How does the system work in its current form, particularly? when don't we start with the federal level?
1: Yeah. Well, so I think a, a great place to start is just you know, right from the basics. What is access to information or freedom of information? So. Uh, you, you mentioned ATIP, that's Access to Information and Privacy. That's the term for this legal mechanism at the federal level. In you know, other provinces, it, ha- it goes by other names. Uh, the name, the term that I think most people are familiar with is freedom of information or FOI. So I tend to speak in those terms when I'm talking about it generally, but in this case, you know, you're right, it is ATI or ATIP uh, because it's the access information system at the federal level. So in its most basic form, It's a legal mechanism uh, enabled by legislation, uh, quasi-constitutional legislation, they call it, that allows you to write a letter basically to the government or to a public body and say, I want this information. And then you pay sometimes a nominal fee. Uh, Perhaps you get charged extra fees on top of that, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in. But then eventually in the mail or over email, you get a set of documents or a CD, In some cases, the government still uses CDs or USB keys or whatever, and that may have like, you know, PDFs of briefing notes, reports, you can get data in Excel form, you can get videos, you can get audio, you can really get any kind of record the government holds uh, through the Freedom of Information Access Information System. There are some exceptions to that. The law doesn't say you get to have anything. Otherwise, we'd all be asking for proof of UFOs and aliens and stuff. And you know nuclear weapon secrets. So there are exemptions for things like national security, personal information. I can't go and request someone else's medical records. Uh, there's also exemptions for other more nuanced stuff like uh, solicitor-client privilege, cabinet confidence, which is something we can talk about in a little bit perhaps, uh, and things like advice to government, uh, which is a controversial exemption in Canada. Sometimes uh, you know the idea that. Uh, if this is advice that someone is providing to a minister or to a senior bureaucrat or whatever, that may not be released because it would harm the full and frank discussions about what to do on a particular issue. So at its most basic, that's the access to information system. And as you can imagine, journalists use it all the time because it's a really great way to learn about the inner workings of a public body without having to get people to leak you stuff or to build an enormous network of sources. So it's just a, it's a tool in uh you know many journalists' toolbox uh, that they use on a daily basis. I think, you know, right now I probably have 30 open FOIs and ATIPs. Uh, but there are months when I'm you know really rolling on something that I might have 60, 70, 80 FOIs open. A lot of people here at the Globe and Mail also use FOI and ATIP all the time. So it's a system that gets used a lot by journalists, but the last thing I want to note, which is really important, is that most people only hear about FOI when journalists talk about it. And so there's this misconception that journalists are the primary users of these mechanisms. Uh, and so, you know, often that leads to <laughs> this issue. I get a lot of email from people saying like, hoo! I don't have any sympathy for you journalists. Like, who cares? And you know, fair point, like I wouldn't care either. But the truth is that free information and access information is actually used mostly by normal civilians, like the public. It's uh, journalists, the media. Uh, I don't remember the exact stat, but they are not the majority by any means. Most of the users of the system are normal people, the public and businesses. So it really is a, a system that gets used a lot more than people realize. the The fact is that they just don't use it until something goes wrong in their life and they need to understand why the government made a certain decision. Or they're aggrieved in some way and they need to, they want to understand why, uh, gosh, the example I always use is like, you know, why isn't my trash being picked up as frequently? Or why am I paying more in this, like, you know, municipal tax or whatever? That's the kind of stuff, that's the, the meat and potatoes of ATIP and
0: FOI. Okay, that's a that's a great introduction. You you know, you close by referencing something like trash pickup, let's say at the municipal level, which Mm -hmm. highlights the fact that these systems extend beyond just the federal government into provincial and municipal governments as well. Are are all the systems roughly similar? Are there any that that stand out? As someone who's, you know, essentially launched requests with, I think, just about every all of them at least to create this project, uh, that stand Mm -hmm. out as doing it particularly well.
1: Yeah. So the I think it's important to note that. uh, there's many different FOI systems in Canada. There's one for each province and territory, and then there's one for the federal government. So, uh, you know, you can, if you're looking to find out stuff about uh, police force or about a municipality, you're gonna go through the provincial legislation for that. Uh, If you you wanna find out something that sits within the federal government universe, you're gonna go through the feds. But uh, that means that we have, you know, a lot of different systems that all kind of look the same, but in practice work fairly differently. In some jurisdictions, uh, you don't get charged fees at all. Like at the federal level, there's a $5 filing fee and then that's it. In other jurisdictions like Ontario, you can, you're can you not only charged a $5 filing fee, they can also charge fees on top of that for processing and re- redacting and releasing a request. I've gotten fee estimates in the past for thousands of dollars. Uh, so, you know, the the system... The systems are similar, but not entirely. The types of exemptions may vary, the timelines may vary. In theory, for the most part, uh, all these systems assume that documents are released within 30 days, though they allow for the possibility of a time extension. Uh, but in practice, uh, you know the, the way that those time extensions get used, for instance, is all over the place. As for who's standing out as doing it particularly well, uh, the work that uh, my colleague Robin Doolittle and I have been doing on this uh, project, Secret Canada, as we call it, uh, which is both an investigative uh, effort as well as a, a website uh, and like resource, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, the, you know, <laughs> our experience has been that the, these governments all across the country and these public bodies that are subject to freedom information are breaking the law on FOI and AT all the time. They're constantly violating their deadlines, redacting things that they're told they weren't supposed to be redacting, uh, you know, not conducting reasonable searches, which is a, a you know, a term of art in the FOI worlds for, you know, did the government or public body actually do its job when it went looking for records, did it actually make an honest effort? So uh, we found that this these systems are broken almost right across the board. There is one standout uh, that seems to be doing much better than the rest, uh, and that is curiously the province of Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: Huh. and and do you have a a theory as to why they're better, or what are, what is it that they're doing better than others?
1: Yeah, well, it's uh, their story is really interesting. I'll try to give you the Cole's notes version. Uh, they had a middle of the pack kind of FOI system up until about 2012. Uh, at the time, the progressive conservative government of the day there uh, passed a uh, set of amendments that tightened the law uh, called Bill 29. And for so many reasons, Bill 29 became a political powder keg in the province. Uh, it was a uh, symbol for the public of, you know, government secrecy and mismanagement uh, and secretiveness. And, <laughs> Uh, it became an albatross around the government's neck to the point where it was, you know, mentioned in casual conversation. It was, uh, you know, it was brought up in the House of Assembly constantly. It became a real, uh, you know, it was a an ongoing wound for the government of the time to the point that eventually in 2014 they said, okay, 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 we're gonna pa- we're gonna start a committee that's gonna review this, and they appointed an independent civilian panel, and they basically. You know, a year later, their final report, they fully repudiated all the changes in Bill 29 and actually went further and said, you know what, we've rewritten the law. (laughs) Here's a draft bill that we think would be much better based on our on the input we got from civil society and the government, uh, you know, being it was still a progressive conservative government at the time in 2015. But there was an election coming up in a few months and they were polling about 30 points behind the liberals (laughs) at the time. I think they, they partly probably knew that they were not going to win the next election. So you know, in an effort to perhaps you know, promote transparency, but also perhaps uh, out of uh, you know, knowledge that they may be able to use this law later on, they took the draft bill and passed it almost virtually, just virtually unchanged, almost no changes. And so Newfoundland was now saddled with this incredibly progressive law. It makes them one of the best jurisdictions in the world on FOI now. There are no fees for the most part. Uh, You know, almost all FOIs are completed within 20 business days. The appeals process is fast. Uh, You can complete an FOI appeal. It has to be completed within 13, 65 business days or 13 weeks of you filing the appeal. It's a completely different system uh, over there. And the impact has been significant. They've seen, uh, you know, massive growth in the number of FOIs that they're receiving. Almost all of that growth is coming from, uh, members of the public again, because people are getting easier access to stuff and they're curious to learn about how their government's making decisions about them. So it's a, it's a big success story, I think for, uh, freedom of information in Canada, uh, over there in Newfoundland. And it's a, obviously it's a very small province. It's like what, 500,000 people, but, uh, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a tale that, you know, shows that this kind of change and, you know, uh, uh, A movement towards increased transparency is possible, even if the government (laughs) these days is not such a big fan. It's been like what, 2015, so eight years now since they passed that law, and the government's starting to say, "Oh, we're getting too many requests (laughs) now." So perhaps they're starting to uh, bristle a bit at uh, the the new law. But it's it's a very progressive system compared to the rest of Canada.
0: Uh, That's a that's a super interesting story. I mean, it highlights governments may be willing to improve their system as long as they're not they know that they're unlikely to be subject to it at least in the (laughs) in the short term um which is going to be a rarity which may may mean that it's somewhat difficult to to replicate now your your reporting as part of secret canada we'll talk about the database in just a sec which is really incredible but Mm -hmm. beyond that there's been a whole series of stories that have highlighted some of the problems with the current system you know documents withheld long delays An appeals process with the information commissioner that is i was about to say borderline unusable but frankly at least in my own experience it's just unusable um Mm. when you i I just got in my own personal experience just got a response back from the information commissioner uh, which are typical you know this was like you filed an appeal four years ago is this still something that you're interested in um as they turn to it years after the after the issue first arose now I had the information commissioner on the podcast last year and she identified some of her preferred reforms but you know someone who uses the system and reports on it what do you see as some of the biggest areas in need of reform
1: Well I can tell you uh there's a few things that come up again and again for me as a user I think uh timeliness is a big one you know like a, I don't expect to get anything anymore in under 60 90 days and even that feels like a miracle sometimes I'm routinely getting At the federal level, extensions that are, you know, they're asking for an extra 120 days, which now puts us at like, you know, almost half a year uh, waiting for documents or longer. So I think that's a big problem is the files are just not going out the door on time. uh, And often they're even delayed beyond that, which means that the government's breaking the law when that's happening. Uh, So delays are a big one at the federal level i find myself increasingly having to push back on redactions often ones that like in hindsight are completely needless and uh senseless you know a, a redaction that may be applied for under one of the valid exemptions of course but then when you get it unredacted you say oh my god this is like none of this was <laughs> none of this really met that definition it feels like but the only way to do that is to go through the appeals process which you just mentioned which is the Uh, Federally, that's run by the Office of the Information Commissioner, which is a a special uh, body that exists, an agent of parliament, I guess they call it, uh, that handles these requests and kind of adjudicates and mediates these disputes. The problem with the OIC is that they take a really long time as well. I have a lot of sympathy for what they're doing because they're fighting for transparency and access. But, you know, ultimately, I, it still takes months and months and months for me to get a decision on uh, an appeal uh, if it's anything more than if it's even remotely complicated, if I'm saying, you know, I want this unredacted or I want I don't understand why they would have withheld this or I'm not satisfied with the search they c- conducted here, that those can take four, five, six months easily. In some cases, I have files that I'm waiting on for more than a year uh, in some cases uh, because of you know administrative delays from the government or understaffing at the OIC because they don't have as much money as they probably need to do this work. So those come up a lot. Uh, there's a million other things that we can talk about, like you know fees being assessed pretty readily by some jurisdictions in ways that are a bit frustrating, the powers or lack thereof uh, for certain information commissioners across the country. Federally, for instance, the uh, information commissioner right now, uh, she was granted additional powers in 2019 through bill c58 which was a uh, a law that kind of tweaked the access to information Act a little bit uh, that the Liberals brought in but uh at the time you know there was a big discussion about whether the OIC should have what's called order making power which is the ability to issue a uh, decision that has the force of a of a court order that says you must release this or you have this many days to comply and release and you know, this delay is not acceptable. So you have an extra 20 days and then you have to release the information or whatever. You must unredact this sentence. Uh, In theory, the OIC has this, but in practice, they're starting to be challenged by the government. Uh, The government's taking them to court now to say, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to respect this order. (laughs) So that's another uh, point of frustration for me sometimes is knowing that there is you know, theoretically, this uh, balance of power that exists with the OIC, but the government is becoming increasingly willing to challenge it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that uh, even the information commissioner, went, having been granted powers, is now still facing some some challenges. Yeah, and it frustrates
1: yeah. her to no end. She uh, she talks about this constantly, you know, the, the need for either, you know, more resources for her office or, you know, a stronger ability to get... Uh, governments to, or the governments and public bodies covered under the federal law to, you know, follow her instruction. Uh, it's a, it's a big issue, but I, I think for her, if you were to ask her, I think, uh, and you have, <laughs> her biggest answer would be resources, I imagine, right?
0: Yeah, that was one, that was definitely one of the, I mean, she highlighted as well, some of the concerns around cabinet confidences and right. some of the exceptions being a source of frustration, but of course it's at the end of the day, it's service delivery can, <laughs> Could she meet the mandate that people have an expectation that people, I think, reasonably have an expectation that the government would meet? And at the moment, it's just not possible because it's just only there's only so much money and so many hours in a day. And, you mm-hmm. know, that's that, that's a choice that's made by government for its independent officers of parliament. They they have no real way of of changing that dynamic short of the government making a change. Uh, exactly. It's not, yeah. You know, now it's not just the government that that may make some of those change, changes or proposed changes there there is also a standing committee of the House of Commons that looks at access to information privacy and ethics and it it seems to study this issue pretty regularly every once in a while we get another yet another study uh, on the system it recently issued sure. yet another study with its own recommendations was there anything that that stood out from that process and its report to you
1: yeah, well, it was, uh, it was interesting to watch. The Standing Committee on Access Information and Ethics, uh, they call it ETHI for short, uh, E-T-H-I, ETHI. Uh, so the ETHI committee is an interesting committee because it's an, it's an oversight committee. So it's always run by the opposition. So the chair is a conservative MP, and uh, the liberals have a vice chair on the committee, and whatever, but uh, they decided to undertake a study last year, an examination uh, of the access information system. And they heard from a lot of people. Uh, They had hearings multiple times between uh, October and uh, earlier this year, I guess, uh, ahead of the report coming out. And and, uh, they came out with a report that had a lot of interesting recommendations but a few jumped out for sure. The main one was, <laughs> uh, in so before I talk about this, let me just like rewind a little bit. In 2015, when the uh, during the during the the last big election that we had, when the Liberals took over, uh, the part of what was on the Liberal platform was we are going to. Uh, amend and improve the access information system. I'm sure you remember this. It was a big deal at the time because, you know, it was such an arcane issue. And it was, here it was on a uh, major party platform. And one of the things that they said they would do would be to bring ministers' offices under the Access Information Act. So, uh, you know, for the five people uh, who are listening to this who you know, may not work in government or in the law or whatever and not be familiar with this, there's usually two, two branches of, uh, uh, in the government, right? There's the political side and there's a public service side. And the political side is the ministers, their, uh, you know, their staff, uh, and then there's the public service side, which is like the departments themselves, the deputy ministers, assistant deputy ministers, all the way down to policy analysts and whatever, uh, All of the public service side is covered by the Access Information Act, but none of the ministers and political side is covered by the law. And that's unusual. Uh, In the rest of the country, for the most part, everyone is covered, right? You can ask for a minister's emails. I could uh, go and ask for, you know, uh, uh, Doug Ford's political staffers' uh, reports or what I can do that in Ontario. You cannot do that federally. So uh, back during uh, the election campaign, the uh, Liberal Party said, okay, we are going to bring minister's offices under the law. And, you know, come C-58, which was those amendments to the Access Information Act in 2019 that I mentioned, that wasn't in the law. (laughs) There was nothing about that in the law. There was uh, some stuff about allowing requesters to see the names of uh, minister staff, if they were captured in emails by the public servants, by the public service or whatever. But there was nothing really about getting ministers' offices kind of covered under the act. So this has been a rallying cry for people for a long time. They're saying, "You guys said you would do this, and you didn't do it." And so, <laughs> you know, lo and behold, that's one of the promises. That's one of the recommendations in this uh, Ethi report is bring ministers' offices under the law. Let's do what uh, we were told would happen eight years ago.
0: Yeah, no, it's a uh, that. I'm glad you you raised that one in particular, that particular recommendation, because, you know, the government's response to this report was, frankly, to reject many of the recommendations in a response that has been described as flippant and short. And it, it all feels makes you feel a little bit hopeless given as you mentioned liberals ran on this in 2015 it's coming out of of course the the harper government that that many accused of being overly secretive and the government the liberals said you know elect us we'll change things and yet yeah we see recommendations coming forward consistent with what was promised and and those get rejected you know leaving the the newfoundland example aside is there any hope do you think of this issue getting past the politics and into the realm of policy and transparency and and seeing real change? Or does it have to be as it was in that, in the one example, you're able to provide a a case where it's viewed as risk-free or even actually a benefit to an outgoing government to be able to hold the next government to account. And and absent that, there's just a deep reluctance once parties get elected to shine the spotlight even more intensely on themselves.
1: Yeah, the the Newfoundland uh, case study what that tells me is that you know a very strong uh a very strong motivator for the government for any government to you know do meaningful transparency and access reform is a scandal <laughs> you know is like a deep level of embarrassment and frustration uh but i don't know that we can wait for you know a uh federal earth-shaking scandal like that. Bill 29 was a huge deal when it happened, and it was connected to some other, uh, you know, goings-on in in Newfoundland at the time, the Muskrat Falls uh, project, which, uh, you know, was cost overruns, delays, et cetera. So it was tied into a lot of other stuff. Federally, we don't really have anything like that uh, going on right now, as far as I can tell. Uh, Obviously, like, transparency and secretiveness and whatever are undercurrents in a lot of the issues uh, and you know whatever that we see in the newspaper or on tv but it's there's nothing i think of that level the other interesting lesson from newfoundland is that you know a government that knows it may lose has no reason not to pass an extremely progressive transparency law because they get to use it in opposition right so uh i wonder sometimes if the at the federal level, what it may require is a government that knows it's about to lose or a united front of opposition parties in a minority government situation that may say, you know what, we're gonna uh we're gonna push this no matter what, and we're gonna use it. So uh, this is gonna happen. Right now, the as you said, the uh the response from the liberals on the FE committee was you know, thanks, but no thanks. We're doing our own thing right now. Uh, but, you know, the, I guess the political winds can always shift, right? Like uh, September will be a new, it'll be a new uh, session. Uh, there'll be uh, new things on their docket. Uh, and perhaps access to information will become a bigger issue because of something going on in the government at the time. I, I have no idea, but it seems like a my conversation with opposition MPs, uh, they seem to feel that This is something worth pushing in part, I'm sure, you know, for the, you know, haughty reasons of democracy, you know, defending uh, the ability of the public to understand how their government operates, which I think is pretty fundamental to, you know, any kind of democratic institution and democratic system. But also perhaps in a more practical sense, just it'll make it easier to hold the government to account and to be the opposition.
0: All right. So so hope springs. Spring's eternal, I guess, and, and, and it, it it is encouraging. I, mean, I think it's I think it is simply almost a truism now that opposition MPs will say that this is a, an area that they're interested in pursuing, yeah. uh, and the, you know the the colors of the teams may change, but the, that <laughs> viewpoint doesn't seem to change very much, though. So absent legal change, you know, I think might make the case that the best hope is for academic or private sector solutions, such as Secret Canada. Uh, Can you talk a bit about the origins of the project and how long has it been in the making?
1: Yeah. So, uh, my colleague Robin Doolittle and I sat down uh, about 20, 20 ish months ago. It would have been October, my goodness, whatever, 2021. October, 2021. uh, Her and I sat down and we were talking about how frustrating it was that journalists often, you know, uh, when they're chatting with each other just casually, uh, or over coffee or lunch or whatever, I'm just belly aching about, uh, you know, freedom of information. You know, exchange war stories about. Oh my God! Like, look at this crazy thing that happened. I was told this didn't exist, but I had the document already, so obviously it did exist. Or whatever. stories like that. But we realized that we were both frustrated by the fact that we all complain about this, but we don't really report on it or try to, uh, you know, examine it in the same way that we might a uh, budget uh, or a trade deal, or, you know, a new piece of legislation or whatever. So we wanted to train our, uh you know, journalism, I guess, on the topic of freedom of information. And we knew from the beginning that it was going to be a hard sell and an uphill battle because it's, you know, perhaps the most boring topic of all time. And... <laughs> Uh, one that, you know, people don't necessarily immediately resonate with because, again, people may think this is a thing for journalists when really it isn't. We've now you know been able to uh, show that pretty well in some of our reporting, I think, some of the examples that we're giving. But we knew that the reporting alone wasn't going to cut it. We also wanted to do something that would, uh, you know, kind of get people to start using the system more, to realize the issues with the system, to you know, agitate for change at that level. And to kind of like, you know, be like an act of civil disobedience almost against the, these broken FOI systems. So we landed pretty quickly on the idea of building a website that would be an educational resource and an informational clearinghouse for people in Canada. So the idea there was that we would collect the summaries of completed FOIs across the country at all levels of government, uh, federally, provincially, municipally, police forces, hospitals, uh, you know, energy utilities, securities regulators, you name it. We wanted to collect information on all the FOIs that they were receiving, like the metadata, I guess, and publish it online and make it really easy for others to go and re-request those documents because it's FOI, so you can. There's nothing stopping you from FOIing someone's FOI. <laughs> so we uh, spent the better part of A year and a half, uh, you know, coming up with how we were going to organize this website, and then filing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of FOIs. I think in the end we filed uh, more than four hundred and fifty, and you know, including the FOIs we used for our reporting, well over five hundred requests right across the country. And the end result is this website, secretcanada.com, which is a place where you can go. You can search for anything you want. If you're interested in potatoes, you can type in potato into the search and you'll see all the FOIs that we have information on that were about potatoes and you can then go to that FOI and we build a little uh, tool that generates a letter for you so you can actually you know copy that put it in the mail send it off and you'll get the FOI so we're trying to build a system that will allow people to use the FOI system more beyond that secret canada also has another really important component which i alluded to earlier the educational side so robert and i spent Uh, you know, the better part of a month just pouring our souls out into these extremely excruciatingly detailed guides on how to file FOIs, how to navigate the system and the process once you've filed. You know, they're saying that they don't have this, but they have that, or they're asking for this much money. They're saying it's going to take this long. How do you handle all of the situations and how to appeal, which is probably the hardest part of the entire process because it's really inscrutable, uh, you may get hit with all these legal arguments. In some cases, you know, the other side hires a lawyer <laughs> to fight you. And so, what do you do about that? So, we have all of these uh, guides and tooling, and we also built uh, this. This is something I'm pretty uh, excited about. We built a letter generator that generates templates for certain types of FOIs. So, if you're looking for a report. There's a letter generator template that you just plug a couple of things into, and you're off to the races. If you want a uh, police report, you can uh, type it up. If you want a database, there's language that helps you get a database file. There's, uh, I think, 10 or 11 templates on the website right now uh, under the, the guides page. They're really useful. Uh, they're you know kind of bulletproofed from... Uh, you know, combined decades of experience between multiple different journalists uh, at the Globe and elsewhere. And then we also have a a blog, (laughs) a news page where we write about, again, the most arcane, insanely specific topics of all time, which are, you know, FOI appeals and uh, uh, just issues surrounding transparency in the access system. So I really encourage people to check it out. It's an invaluable resource. Even if you are not a journalist, not an activist, not an academic, not someone who does research. Maybe you just want to look at your town uh, and see what kind of FOIs they've released. Uh, or you want to like Google the name of someone. Uh, you know like a politician that you've interacted with or a company that you've dealt with and see what comes up because it's very interesting. There's a lot of really interesting stuff on there.
0: I mean, that's just, it's, it's awesome. I mean, what it's an amazing initiative and it's incredible to hear you describe all the different tentacles and, and developments that have come with it. I have to say, I mean, it, it brings back memories, both of my late colleague Ian Kerr, who, uh, as mm-hmm. part of one of his projects many years ago, and on equity, one of the deliverables was to create guides to try to help people. and this this sort of advances that and takes it to some a really interesting level and I've, I've been involved with some foundations that have tried to fund some of this kind of work to see all of this come together and come together by uh, by a private newspaper is is or news organization <laughs> is is an is a really amazing thing to see have you have you had any pushback from any of the access to information offices saying, I don't know, copyright related concerns about republishing some of this data or dragging their feet and not wanting to see uh, that the information being made available in this way
1: yeah you know it's uh, we've seen a little bit of uh we've seen some resistance uh on the formats stuff especially we had a lot of fights where ultimately we're asking people for can you like you know export this in a machine readable format in like a a spreadsheet form, because we were asking for, uh, you know, the request number for every FOI, the request text, and certain dates and the disposition, you know, like how much information was released, if any. Uh, And a lot of organizations said, we're not allowed to send you Excel files. It has to be a PDF to which, you know, that would then become a, a negotiation and a conversation because the laws mostly say that they can do that, but policies, Internal policies don't allow for that, so we saw a lot of resistance that way. We tried to be very upfront about what we were doing. So in our requests, uh, we we posted the request text in our extremely long and boring methodology on the on the website. Uh, We say, you know, we are conducting a survey of all institutions, blah 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 blah, and we're asking for yours. Uh, So we were trying to be upfront with the idea that you know we're asking for this information not just for ourselves. Now that we've done it once, we've been hearing from uh some FOI offices saying this is great. You know, we love that you're doing this and we'll work on our processes to get you something better. That's been really nice. Uh but otherwise for the most part we haven't heard from a lot of these FOI offices. I think they're maybe, you know, too busy googling their, you know, municipal neighbors or whatever and, and seeing <laughs> or looking them up on secret candidate and say like, "Oh, okay, like uh, how much did uh the town the town over release compared to us so how are we faring so uh there's been some pushback nothing on the nothing on copyright or anything like that i mean that would be a really interesting argument to be making uh we were very careful to not publish any we only asked for general requests like information requests not anyone's not personal information requests we did not want those those are not accessible to other people aside from the person who originally filed the request anyway so they would be useless and you know we're not we're not doing this to like reveal anyone's personal information or anything like that. So the the database is really supposed to be about uh, learning about how your government and public bodies operate. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I think, I don't know, I hope there's not more <laughs> resistance, but I can't be sure. you'll never we never know. I, yeah. I, I suspect it's only a matter of time before. Uh, at least one organization gets their hackles up, but so far nothing, nothing negative. Nothing
0: yeah, negative. no, that that could be. I mean, it's interesting. I I was on the board of Canley for quite a number of years, the Canadian mm. Legal Information Institute, and so they publish all the case law and statutes. Yeah, and the, you know the history of that organization was initially, you know, there was this stuff was not available, and it was a, it's always a similar argument that the public should have access to its laws and, and court and <laughs> tribunal decisions. Yeah, and. At that time, it was the law societies that took it upon themselves to do this a bit of a as a cost saving measure because they were spending a lot of money gaining access to materials that people should have had access to. And the, the broader public access was just a happy byproduct. But mm-hmm. you know, initially, some of the courts were really concerned about some of this. You know, how how authoritative was this going to be? What were some of the other implications of having this third party publish it? But, you know, over time it shifts and flips on its head and courts come to rely on sites like Canly to make their information available. And perhaps the same will happen here.
1: Yeah. We'd like to, for our next round, we're going to, we're going to, it'll be an interesting test because we'll see one, if like anyone is responding to us differently, but uh, we're also going to try to be really proactive in helping them help themselves basically. So, Uh, we've talked about, you know, maybe we create a special page on the website for them that shows, okay, here's how to export data from the system that you're using. Or it may say like, you know, here's in, you know, really annoying detail why we need Excel files. You know, here's why a PDF is bad and why it's going to create problems for us. And it may be bad for you too, because it'll mean that we can't include the data that you sent us, which will mean that there's a big fat zero on your page, as opposed to, 3000 for the you know town uh, 10 miles over or whatever. So the, yeah, like I think uh, the next round is going to be a real big test of the FOI system because now they know that we're doing this and they can go to the website and see it. Right. So I'm very curious to see how they respond.
0: Let me close with this other than just say, Hey, People, if you're as, as you listen, you can stop what you're doing and, and go to Secret Canada right now. But um before you do that, you know, obviously it's been a major investment by by the Globe and Mail. I'm I'm hoping yeah. you'll say that, you know, what come next, what comes next includes a plan to maintain it, including Continuing to add to the database over time, but can yeah. you describe a bit what some of the thoughts are in terms of what comes next, and uh, especially that issue around maintenance to ensure that you're continuing to add to the database with more and more of the requests as as you know the months months go along.
1: Yeah, Robin and I were adamant from the beginning that we had to do some succession planning and some long term planning on this to make sure that it wasn't just going to be a you know a one year project that dies on the vine. We spent way too much time, and uh, w- I spent way too many hours on the phone uh, with FOI analysts in you know different parts of various different governments to see this thing uh, peter out after a year or two. So, uh, first of all, on you know the data itself, the data doesn't update every single day because we're we we're trying to file these FOIs in like a in waves because otherwise it's just you know I would be. On the phone every single day, all day, dealing with like FOI analysts saying, like, well, we don't have it exactly in this format or whatever. And that would just be my full-time job. So we're not doing that. Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna start filing our next round of requests uh probably in the next month or two. And that will, you know, then take us, it may take us like three, four, five, six months to. Uh, get all that stuff back, clean it up and get it into the database. But we are going to be updating the database and there will be some small updates in the meantime uh, from the stragglers who've taken a year to respond to a request that should have taken (laughs) two weeks. Uh, So we'll, we'll have a few little updates here and there in the next little while. And we'll, I'll, you know, tweet about it and we'll write about it on the secret Canada blog. uh, So people know that those enhancements do exist in terms of other succession planning. I think, uh, you know, I, I love the Globe. I love working here, but I also know that uh, it's probably unreasonable to expect a private, you know, business, even if it's a newspaper, to you know, be the steward of this forever. Right? That's not what the Globe is designed to do. Uh, the Globe is designed to be a newspaper. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, we don't have any plans immediately to. Uh, like Secret Canada is going to stay with the globe for now, but I think Robin and I are, we are talking about how can we ensure the long-term survival of this? You know, we're talking decades, right? So how does that work? Like, what is the globe's level of involvement? How involved does it want to be? And what are the other types of organizations or parties that may want a part in this? I mean, we've been getting a lot of emails from people saying, how can I help? You know, can I donate money? <laughs> to which the answer is, please don't. It'll just create so much more work for us if we started getting a bunch of money in the mail. <laughs> uh, but uh, we are we are starting to have some conversations about how this can be maintained over the extremely long term. Because you know, until until these uh, all these different governments come together to create a system that makes secret Canada necessary, so that we can finally pull the plug, we're going to keep running it. I think is the the answer. That's a, it's a long-term commitment. I certainly commit to continuing to use it. Uh, and you know, I'll be filing a bunch of FOIs in the near future, as will Robin. But beyond that, uh, I think the, the service that it provides and also the, the institutional pressure on some of these organizations to improve their response times, improve the types of responses that they send. you know, we don't want PDFs, we want Excel files. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, the pressure it creates on the bigger levels of government to do this themselves, it's only going to work if the website continues to exist. So, uh, yeah, like there suffice it to say there's succession planning in the works and we are certainly, you know, in it for the long haul.
0: Well, you know, listen, as I say, this is truly remarkable initiative. Thank you to to you and to your partner in this, Robin, for for undertaking it, for the globe, for supporting it. And thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about it.
1: Yeah, I just I just want to say, you know, if if you have any, if you're curious at all, you should definitely go to secretcanada.com. The best thing anyone can do to keep this project going is to use it. <laughs> and you know, if you use it to file an FOI, let us know because that also helps us grow the project and understand how people are using the system. But yeah, I I'm really excited to see people starting to use Secret Canada because I think it's a it could be a really powerful resource. Mm.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to LawBites at P.O. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at M. Geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy.